0: That is the fasting song. That's what you say to God when God will be the only one that does it for you. That's what we say to God when we know that anything else can show up, but if God doesn't show up, we're lost. That's the fasting song. Lord, I'm desperate for you. I am lost without you. If you don't show up, In this situation, in this part of my life, for this loved one, nothing else will do. And that's why we fast, friends, and that's why we don't fast. Just like we talked about last week. Because either we're desperate for Him and we're lost without Him, or we're not desperate for Him and we're not lost without Him. We're quite comfortable without Him. And so we fast, as we said last week, we fast because the bridegroom is not here. And we miss him. And we know because the first time he was here, what he did showed us what he wants to do when he fully brings his kingdom. And once we've gotten a taste of that, nothing else will do. Well, Jesus has been teaching us through the Gospel of Mark about many different themes. This morning, as we come together, um, before we just have a moment here, just before that, I want to say whatever you have brought to this service, whatever you have brought that is uppermost in your mind and most deeply rooted in your heart that you're carrying, you need to know that Jesus is also having that uppermost in His mind and deepest in His heart for you. So let me pray for us as we begin. Jesus, this is a a holy moment as we Get ready to sit under your word again, and we've been, so already, we've been already confronted with your holiness in the songs and the worship that we have sought to give you. And Lord, I ask you to please meet us in this time and be with us, God. We, we come from various places and have many stories to tell, but you know every one of our stories, and you want to write your story over top of it, Lord. And so please be merciful today to teach us from your word. And thank you for each uh, person here, each visitor. And we ask you to, uh, to meet us in, in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sorry to take a break from our message right now because there are eight cars illegally parked outside. <laughs> and we have had this tr- trouble from time to time. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is in a moment, I'm going to say, everybody's going to stand we're gonna greet people around us that we don't know, and so on. <laughs> and uh, some of you might just slip out if you're if you're on Skirfield and park parked beyond the two signs that say it's okay to park between. That's probably what we're, where we're talking about. And please, the choir was here first service, sang at the beginning of the second service, and they've gone. There's probably some parking spots in our in our lot. Fill any spot of pavement you see in our parking lot. I mean. Uh, there's handicapped places and sidewalks Not quite sidewalks but, but fill wherever you can if you're parked illegally Not saying for sure you'll get a ticket But it has happened And, uh, and we've uh, we covered that a couple times We don't want to keep covering that for people So would you stand and turn around There's a few people around you you don't know So why don't you say hi to them Terry my name. Okay. <laughs> I'd love to keep this going until the people park their cars, but... Uh I'd love to keep this going until people park their cars, but maybe we won't have time for that. Amen. A well-known Anglican cleric of the 20th century, his name is Richard Lucas, once wrote about an imaginary conversation that was had between a first-century Christian, a person that lived just years after the ascension of Jesus into the heavens, and a Roman citizen, a pagan Roman citizen in the city of Rome, okay, first century. And uh, it went something like this, imaginary conversation. The pagan neighbor says to the Christian, Ah, I hear you are religious. That is great. Religion is a good thing. Where is your temple, your holy place? Well, we don't have a temple, replies the Christian, for Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where do your priests work and do their rituals? Oh, we don't have priests to to mediate the presence of God because Jesus is our priest. What? No priests? But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? Uh, We don't need sacrifices for Jesus is our sacrifice. What? No sacrifices? No temple? No priests? What kind of a religion is that? And the answer, of course, is it's no religion at all. Amen? Amen? It's no religion at all. That's the point. What Jesus inaugurated, what Jesus came to bring, is no religion at all. G.K. Chesterton observed that, according to most philosophies and philosophers of this world, that in making the world, God enslaved the world. He put laws into place that made us do and way, and operate in certain ways. That in making the world, God enslaved the world. And in Christianity, in Christ, we see and we hear that in making the world, God set the world free. That's so critical that you get that. It's so critical that you get that. It is the most grave misunderstanding of Christ and of what He taught to think of His commands as burdensome. For behind every command is the goal of setting humans free. When we saw Jesus on earth for the first time, that's what He was all about doing. Setting humans free to enjoy the favor of God fully. To enjoy shalom. Even in the teaching that we saw last week on fasting, which in our conversation at our life group, for some sounded rather burdensome, this thing called fasting. We really don't get it if we see that as burdensome, because in reality, fasting is revealing what is enslaving you, and Jesus is the greatest liberator of all that is saying, don't let these things enslave you, I have come to set you free. And so we fast to get a hold of our hearts and to see what it is that is controlling them. And we fast to say, Jesus, only you will do. I love you this much. I want you this much that I'll go without food. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The religion that Jesus clashed with most, when he was on planet Earth, was epitomized in the religious leaders of his day called Pharisees. Theirs was the religion of enslavement with rules, not of freedom for humanity. The name Pharisee literally means separated ones. And what they meant by that in calling themselves that was that they were separated under God because God said, you are to be holy just as I am holy, separate. And so they chose and they tried to be separate from the world They were a group of laymen a few hundred years before Jesus that had taken vows of ritual purity that was usually associated only with priests in the temple. And they sought to obey the very letter of the law found in the Torah. Their driving motivation was to be holy and separate unto God. But in their pursuit of holiness, they obsessed over the what not to do, the the preventative side of holiness. And as you can imagine, this led to extreme isms like negativism and judgmentalism and moralism and legalism and a few other isms you could say that they had the right goal in mind but they sure took the wrong road to try and get there by the time that jesus walked on the earth after the pharisees had been a established sect among the jews jesus walked into the world and they had already Elaborate codes of ethical conduct that were required for someone to be righteous before God. And not only were these codes in addition to the law of Moses, but they were not only burdensome to keep, but they were actually impossible to obey fully. And so Jesus, and, and, and so what is it, what happens when you have a law that's impossible to keep? You you either just say, I can't do it, and there's gotta be another way of righteousness. Or you become a hypocrite. <laughs> and that's what the Pharisees chose to do, was they they just became hypocritical. And Jesus pulled no punches in pointing out their hypocrisy on all kinds of ways. And so Jesus clashed with the Pharisees. Timothy Keller has written a book called King's Cross. And in the book, he he says that the gospel of Jesus Christ is an offense to two kinds of people on earth, the religious and the irreligious. Now you say, well, is there anybody else? Well, maybe not. So it's an easy thing to say. But the gospel authentically clashes with the religious and the irreligious. One, because the religious try to justify themselves and attain righteousness through moralism and the irreligious through relativism okay and the reason they don't mix with the gospel is because both of them are self-righteous attempts both of them are saying I don't need a redeemer to come thank you God I can do it on my own kinda once in a while I might call you but mostly I'm okay I can make it either through moralism legalistic rules of righteousness, or through relativism, which is making up my own rules as I go, and that's pretty convenient. Now you'll notice in the first uh, point in the insert in your bulletin, there's a long word. It's the word moralistic therapeutic deism. Now the Pharisees represented the religious attempt to eliminate a Redeemer through being good and through moralism and even in this age that we live in which we would probably more identify with relativism than moralism moralism is actually quite alive and well on planet earth a form of it and the pop religion of Jesus' day may look somewhat different than the pop religion of this day But in actuality, their goals and their mechanisms are the same, and they are equally an offense to God and His gospel of grace. So what is moralistic therapeutic deism? Well, in 2009, two researchers named Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton published their findings in a book called Soul Searching the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And in the end of the study, after over 3,000 interviews one-on-one with with uh, teenagers throughout America, they coined a phrase that described the belief system of thousands of these religious teens that formed the focal group of of their study. And they called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. And if you unpack the three words, you can get a handle on what it means. Moralistic meaning that through a list of moral rules and obligations, you can be good. Therapeutic meaning that it's really mostly about me and my my individual self wholeness and satisfaction and fulfillment therapeutically. And deism, it's about God in a way, but it's not the God of the Bible, the personal walk with me, God through all the tough of life, but rather this deistic God that is transcendent and up there, and every once in a while he'll intersect with me for the most part, though, he's not too concerned about personal issues in my life. Moralistic therapeutic deism. There are five things that I could say that describe it according to the authors. And this is, I suppose, one author says this is the lived religion that is becoming the hollowed out Christian faith in America, okay? This is the lived religion. This is what really matters. Not the stuff that's in the textbooks and the statements of faith. This is the lived religion of Christianity for many people in the 25 and under generation especially that learned, us, learned it from the 25 and over generation, indirectly. Number one, they believe that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, but God is at a safe distance. Okay? There is a God, but He stays at a safe distance, and He's not really, really personally concerned about all my little Faults and failures and things. Okay, that's number one. Number two, that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, just like the Bible teaches and just like this group of of people believe most world religions teach. Okay, so there's this blending of all world religions saying, really it's all about being nice, good, and fair. Okay. Number three, that the central goal of life is to be happy, to feel good about oneself. Subjective well-being is, is, is an idol. Okay? It's about self-improvement is the one great moral imperative. Self-improvement. If you're not self-improving, you're a loser. And it's all about self-fulfillment. It's all about you finding your own meaning. It doesn't matter what the meaning is described in this book. It doesn't matter what meaning means for someone be sitting beside you. You've got to find your own meaning, self-fulfillment, self-actualization. It's about you. And then fourthly, that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except to resolve some problems. So I call it the God on a leash theory, you know, like uh, I'm kind of doing okay, God, just leave me alone, but every once in a while yank him over because we're really facing some tough times now that is the God that our society often believes in on the brink of eternity values change someone said, and then number five last tenet of faith in this moralistic, therapeutic deism is that good people go to heaven when they die whatever that is, heaven, you know good people go to heaven. Now you'll notice that the primary language that I've used in describing these five tenets of the moralistic therapeutic deism don't have a lot of similarity with the language of the Bible where sin and repentance and redemption and faith and all those things are talked about, does it? (laughs) You see, the language of, of this new religion has supplanted the language of theology, of good theology, we don't want to talk about some of those things. And so it's, it's, it's about being happy, nice, good, fair. That's important. Human problems are really reduced to pathologies. You see, pathologies can be treated. We can treat pathologies. Sin is not mentioned because sin... How do you treat sin? Sin. With the, the medical doctor, the psychiatrist, the psychologist, the sociologist, the whateverist. How do you treat sin? But pathologies can be dealt with. The big idea behind moralistic therapeutic deism is that we can earn our favor with God, whoever He is. We can justify ourselves before God by virtue of our own behavior. And it may look religious, and even for some, undiscerning eyes it may look like christianity but it really is more about self-actualization self-fulfillment than it is about righteousness before god in a book called the explicit gospel matt chandler says about this approach to life that it posits a god who does not so much intervene and redeem but basically hangs out behind the scenes cheering you on in your you-ness and hoping that you pick up the clues that he's left behind to help you be the best you that you can be. End of quote. God on a leash. How do we characterize this in today's age? I, I was thinking of it this not too long ago. I was getting my hair cut, and the woman that was cutting my hair I was having this incredibly great conversation. We were talking about immigrants, we were talking about uh, how Canada's changing, we were talking about people in the workforce and so on. And as we were talking, she didn't once, in about 20 minutes of cutting hair, didn't, let me once, have eye contact with me. What she was doing was, I think it was probably about 40% time looking at my hair and 60% of the time looking at herself in the mirror as she spoke with me. I kept on trying to clear my throat and lift my head and get eye contact. And she would be doing this and looking at herself in the mirror. And I think that is, that is a, a picture of way, the way our generation has decided to do theology. Theology. You see, theology is the study of God. And we've decided that we're going to do the study of God by staring at ourselves in the mirror. We're going to make conclusions about God by staring at ourselves in the mirror. We have placed ourselves at the center of theology and we're making conclusions about the Almighty based on staring at ourselves in the mirror. How can we but come to wrong conclusions about God, about self, and about the world around us, if that's the basis and the reference point for how we do theology. The research should make us pause and think about what we're doing to nurture faith in our families, how well we know the truth of God. You see, we have assumed the gospel instead of making it explicit. We've been content to have a few talks about Jesus around the family table. We've been content to make moralism and declarations about moralism with our kids in our our Sunday school classes more important than the gospel. We've said try to be good and avoid bad. That's the most important message. We've done this, friends. And how can we do this over and over again? How can we think we're going to end up with authentic Christian product if that's what we're doing? Instead, we end up at the end with a lot of little Pharisees who have made up their own way of how they're going to please God. One more observation that I might make about this study is that, two more actually, one is that in all the conversations, the interviews of these 3,000 plus teenagers, the interviewers reported to the researchers that it felt like that was the first real conversation about God that that teenager had. And secondly, guess what the prime word was of that generation in all of the interviews? 3,000 plus. What's the main word that was surfaced more than any other word? Anybody want to take a hammer at it? A a guess. What is it? Me. Me. That's probably close, but you know what the word was? Whatever. Whatever. I wasn't surprised when I read that. What do you really believe about God? What do you believe about your unsaved friends? Whatever. Now those convictions? You know, see, the thing that this study revealed was that though the religious teenage population of Canada and the United States might appear religious, it is really, moralistic therapeutic deism really is a mask, a religious mask of relativism. Whatever. Whatever. Sorry, this is a bit of a long runway, isn't it? To the text this morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2? The point that is important to know is that in every generation, there will be a version and a perversion of what the gospel teaches. Every generation, it will surface some version and some perversion of what the truth has to say. And let's look at a passage now in Mark chapter 2, which describes the version of religion that Jesus had to face, the grief it caused him, and it centers around the whole subject of the Sabbath observance. Mark, in his gospel in chapter 2-3, records two Sabbath day controversies back-to-back, And we're going to read them both right now and comment on them. So would you stand with me as we listen to God's Word? Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 23. And uh, let's listen to what the Word of God says about the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as His disciples walked along, they began to pick some of the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to Him, Look! Why are they doing this? What is lawful unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even, of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, and so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. I recognize that the word Sabbath might raise a little bit of controversy in your own heart for some of you that are older, perhaps. I would imagine that for the younger generation, it's, uh, it's not a, a word that resonates deeply. But for some of you that are older, the Sabbath might just resonate a little more deeply about rules and regulations of what you can and you can't do on Sundays. I grew up with just a little bit of that, not too much. I remember my parents wrestling through whether I could play a sport on a Sunday and so on. But I really kind of had a frontal attack on it one day in my first pastoral ministry in Eagle River near Dryden, Ontario. And I loved playing hockey, and so one day there was a tournament in Vermilion Bay, and so uh, one of the fellas on the team that was from our church, uh, the game was going to be at around 12.30 on Sunday at noon or so. And uh, so we finished the service around 12.00, and he had his truck running and my hockey equipment in the back. And normally I would go to the back of the room and I would shake the hands and, you know, do the networking that pastors do, you know. But on that particular day, I kind of cut it short and uh, I went uh, to play hockey. Well, things seemed fine. didn't hear anything about it. I think we might have even won the game. God was blessing us. Isn't that something, eh? <laughs> So, about Monday or Tuesday of that week, I got a phone call from an older gentleman, a founding member of the church at Eagle River, Percy Shields. Now, Percy was the kind of man that just shot from here, like he was a straight shooting, six-packing, you know, this is the way it is, and uh, he was a Sabbatarian, which I did not claim to be, but we would never discussed the matter. A Sabbatarian simply means that you believe that uh, the Lord's Day is also kind of a carryover of the Sabbath of the Old Testament, and so even though the Lord's Day is on the first day of the week and the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, you kind of carry over that there's certain regulations that you ought to observe. Well, Percy was from the old school, and he was a Sabbatarian. And so he said, well, Lily and I would like you to come over for lunch on Wednesday. I said, great, great, I'll, I'll be there. And we had a wonderful lunch, and we were talking about the farming and the this and the that. And, and then uh, Lily is <laughs> clearing off the plates, and uh, the dessert's coming out, and then Percy just comes right out with it. I don't like the example you're being to our young people. That's how he talked. I don't like the example you're being to our young people. I said, I totally didn't understand what the context was. Yeah, I said, well, what, what, what do you mean? Well, you went and played hockey on Sunday. I don't think that's right. And so we got into it. We talked, you know. And, and in his way of thinking, that was anathema. That was wrong. That was contrary to what God would, would like you to do. Bad example. In my way of thinking was like, hey, I fulfilled my, my responsibilities, and it was time to go. So Sabbath might raise a few things in some of you and maybe a few things, uh, not a few things in another, others of you. The point is that I think that the generation of our parents probably carried over some of the pharisaical ideas about Sabbath into the Lord's Day practice. And again, I'm probably on very thin ice right now. <laughs> I can see the sides happening. <laughs> no. So everybody that's, that's you know, in this corner, I went, no, I'm just kidding. We won't go there. What you believe about this, like so many areas, like fasting, you believe that between you and God and respect others for what they believe. But the Pharisees had an approach to the Sabbath that was offensive to God. So however you come down on the Lord's Day act, your your decision on that one, but you need to hear the heart of God as we look at this passage together. So in Mark chapter 2, first of all, I want you to notice that Jesus is being stalked by the Pharisees. Okay, They are stalking him. We see it in chapter 1, we see it in chapter 2, 16, 18, 24, chapter 3, verse 2, verse 6. Jesus is being stalked. They are looking, according to 3.2, they're looking for a way to accuse him. Um, And and so Jesus, the first story in chapter 2, verse 23, the first story is incredible. Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields. Now, do you picture this? I I picture it this way. They're walking through the grain fields, the grain's up this high maybe, and and they're gleaning. Maybe their fingers are just walking. I love that feel. You know, you're walking through. You just got it running through your hand, and and as they do it, they maybe close their fingers together and they pull some of the heads off the grain, and they take that and they pop it in their mouths and they savor that. And, and the Pharisees are following Jesus and his disciples as they go from point A to point B, and they're pointing the finger and saying, "Look at, look what your disciples are doing. They're doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath." Now, in Exodus chapter 31, which is the laws on the Sabbath, the only thing that the Bible really says about being unlawful is don't work on the Sabbath because six days God created, on the seventh he rested, therefore don't work on the Sabbath. But these Pharisees defined work in a whole bunch of ways that were minute, trivial detail. And according to them, that was harvesting. (laughs) That was harvesting. Do you believe this? I mean, if I would have been there, I would have said, Really? Really? Is that what you mean? And Jesus is just appalled. So Jesus pulls out of his his history a story of David when David in 1 Samuel chapter 21 is running from Saul and he goes into the temple or the, the tabernacle and And there's the showbread, the consecrated bread, only for priests to be sitting there before God, you know, in the table of the presence. And David eats it. And he shares it with his companions. And Jesus says, do you not remember that story? And they're silent. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to say what to say. Jesus follows up by saying, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You're so wrong. You're so wrong in what is major and what is minor. And then he adds, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Just like he reinterpreted fasting for them, he's now reinterpreting Sabbath for them. This is a critical text. Clearly, Jesus is teaching that David's need and hunger took precedent over ceremonial rule-keeping. Jesus could not tolerate the nitpicking legalism. It was was an offense in the nostrils of God. Nitpicking legalism. That's what got Jesus angry. Majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. Do we have any nitpicking legalism in our our lives? The second Sabbath story takes place not in the grain fields, but in the synagogue on a Sabbath day. A man with a shriveled hand was present. And we need to understand that that when, when the synagogue worship was conducted, that at certain points of prayer, the whole congregation would stand up and they would lift their hands at shoulder height with palms up. And so there was this man with a shriveled hand that was among them, and there he is with his palms up and, his, and his, his worshiping God, and everybody sees that his hand is shriveled, limp. Some maybe think that this was a setup, that the Pharisees might have even brought him into worship to see if Jesus might heal him on the Sabbath. And so Jesus sees what's going on, he knows what's in their hearts, and he says, stand up in front of everybody. He makes a lesson of this. Jesus was so angry in this text, it's one of the most angry times we see him. You can read about it in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, the words that are used. The anger word as well as the distressed word, deeply distressed. Distressed, in anguish. The Son of God looking at what is becoming of His people and seeing that that they were silent after He asked the question, a simple question what is right or better? To do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? To save life or to kill? Not a hard question. And they were silent. And so Jesus was angry. See, the interesting thing is that the word Sabbath is a close relative of the word shalom. I know Pastor Alphys taught us a lot on shalom, that state of wholeness and wellness. And, And so in a sense, we're getting from this text that Jesus is saying, what better day, right? What better day to give this man wholeness and wellness than the Sabbath day isn't that Jesus? what Jesus is all about what better day to do that but instead they the Pharisees were so concerned about their little rules what better day could there have been to heal a man and bring him wholeness when everybody stopped their work and God continued to work and show him his, his Sabbath. Yet the religious leaders were too preoccupied with rule-keeping. As we conclude, I want you to take a look at that green piece of paper and notice there are a few questions for reflection. And um, first of all, I want you to think about this term moralistic therapeutic deism, and I want to ask you if maybe is there anything about that that has crept into your beliefs and your practices of your faith. If you want to Google that, by the way, you, you'll find a lot written on that. In fact, there's a really good article by Albert Moeller, the president of uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in, in uh, Kentucky, a uh, great article about it. There's lots to be written. If you want to further study on that, you'll find it on Google. Is there any of that that's crept into what you believe? It's dangerous. It's self-righteous. It's not gospel. Secondly, what are some areas where I might be nitpicky and I'll miss the Lord's heart completely? You know, we, we all have different areas. You might have a, an area you believe in and you've put it in your primary doctrine and I've got it in my secondary. And there'll be things that might be in my primary that are in your secondary and then you'll start nitpicking. Well, the point is, do we, do we believe what we believe because the Word of God teaches us and it's clear? Or are we nitpicking about the minor things? And then thirdly, are there some areas of life where I'm quicker to accuse than I am to show mercy? That, that's where Jesus got angry, friends. If you're holding judgment in your heart over somebody and you're, you're quicker to accuse than show mercy, Jesus is angry with you. Just recently, I, I met up with a person that I hadn't seen for a long time. And we had had some history with this person and they had really disappointed us and, and years and years ago, once, then a, a few years ago, a second time, and, and this time around, I had a hard time. But I had to re- realize that I was holding judgment against this person. I was accusatory of heart instead of merciful of heart. And when I went to talk to him, I found a friend. Would you stand with me as we conclude? <clears throat> Oh, Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you. God, we thank you for your word. And, and Lord, as we think about the essence of Jesus, the essence of what you taught, Lord Jesus, we want that essence to be what we're all about. But sometimes we, reveal, we resemble the Pharisees. And sometimes we don't get it right. Forgive us for our nitpicking. Forgive us for our accusing when we should be showing mercy. Lord, I ask you to work in our hearts the essence of Jesus in all of his mercy and grace. And Lord, we, whatever area that needed to sink in, whatever area some individuals in this room needed to hear this morning, I pray that, that they would have heard it and that your Holy Spirit will give them grace to live it by your power. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. People of God, go in peace. Thank you.